Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com. As you guys see, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a minute. And uh, it's kind of a neat uh, reason, a neat way to do it today, because we're looking at uh, the issue of love, the issue of love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. And in the early church, they would practice together what they called love feasts. And in essence, it was just a, an amazing dinner, like a grand potluck supper, we might say. Everybody brought in food to share and that kind of thing. And they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together, but it was called a love feast because they were intentionally trying to, to connect as a church body and to show that love, that hospitality, that genuine, honest-to-goodness care with one another. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today is what God really views love is. We all know love makes the world go round. We crave love. We want to be loved. Uh, and we're going to see today that we have a huge responsibility as followers of our Lord Jesus to show that love to the people around us. So take your Bible, if you would. We'll spend a few minutes looking at 1 Corinthians chapter, really we're going to camp out in chapter 13, but I want to read the tail end of chapter 12 just to help us to understand the context. And after talking about this and relationships, we're going to share in our Lord's table together, as He told us to, to remember that it's really all about the, the love that we get to experience from Him and that we in turn get to share with one another really overflows out of the love that He showed us 2,000 years ago. And we want to remember that in a special way. So read with me, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 20, 27 and 28. The Bible says this, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually are members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Of course not, is what he's expecting. Are all prophets? Of course not. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a still more excellent way. Go to verse 1 with me. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Pray with me, would you? Father, we are grateful this morning to relook at just the importance of love. And Father, help us to understand it. Help us to genuinely look into our own life, our own actions, our own attitudes, our own heart uh, toward others to examine our love that you've told us we're to show. Help us, Father, to be refreshed in your love toward us and to be renewed in that. Father, would you speak to us this morning? We need to hear from you above all else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I started by reading before just diving into talking about love. You know, this passage that we will read in a minute has been in so many weddings, so many wedding ceremonies, talking about what love is all about. 
But in, in context, Paul is in the middle. He almost takes a break. This is almost like the halftime intermission show when he's diving into the spiritual gifts and how the church body there in Corinth is supposed to function together. And he goes on at length about, about love. And what he's telling them is he's looking at a church that valued ministry, uh, but there was a lot of pride and a lot of ego and a lot of stuff going on and people walking around. There was almost a status being given out because of certain people's ministries that they had. And Paul is trying to just help them to deal with all of that junk. And he says, look, guys, yeah, we need to desire some of these, but nobody does all of these things. Nobody, everybody is not, you know, Everybody doesn't have the gift of teaching. Everybody doesn't have the gift of prophecy, speaking in tongues, all of this. But he says, regardless, desire the manifestation in your midst of the greater gifts, the, the ones that help you to grow, etc. But he says, even so, I really want you to chill out about the gifts. And I really want you to focus on something that's way better and way more important. It is a more excellent way, which is kind of bad English, but it's just a way of saying like, this is really important. You need to focus on love. The issue that you need to focus on is not your ministry and what's going on with you. You need to focus on your relationship with all of the people in your church and whether or not you genuinely, truly love them. So let me show you this morning three things that he tells us in this passage. Three very simple things. We're first going to look at the superiority of love over, over everything, really. It's superior. And then we're going to talk about the standard of love after that. Paul says, he says, look, if I, have, if I can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Be careful that you don't fill in the blank with what that language, that tongues of angels is all about. Two or three times Paul has referred to angels in here. And every time, it is a head-scratcher. You know, he says, don't you know you're entertaining angels? Okay. Don't you know you're going to judge angels one day? Okay, what does that mean? So be careful that we don't fill in the blanks with, all of, with what exactly that means. But what he is saying is, look, I don't care if you've got the ability to speak unbelievable things, but if you don't have a motivation of love, and it's not coming out of a love for other people, you're just a glorified noisemaker. You're just blowing hot air and making a whole lot of noise. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how wonderful you are. If you really don't have love in your heart towards the people around you that you're talking about, you're a glorified noisemaker. In fact, it goes on further. I don't care if you understand all the mysteries of the universe and the smartest person on the planet, and you or the person has the most incredible faith in an all-powerful God so that you could literally say to Mount Marcy, you know, be picked up and be thrown into the ocean. I don't care if you can do that. If you don't have love towards people, not only are you a blowhard, just a big noisemaker, you literally are... Nothing, he says. And then to drive it even further, he says, and if I give every, away everything I have, if I, can live, if I live my life in such a way that I'm just going to give everything away, and if I even am willing to say, I'm going to die for somebody else and allow myself to be burned, but I don't have love for those individuals or people around me, then I literally am accomplishing nothing. 
that there is zero impact in eternity, zero kingdom impact in the world, that love is far more important than any of the ministries that we come up with. So first thing I want us to recognize is, guys, usually when there's problems in relationships, it's because we are focusing on the ministries. Saying, Good morning, Gary. We're focusing on the ministries, and we're focusing on the service, and we're focusing on the things, and we're forgetting the love that should undergird everything around us. Think back to your relationships. This is really what Paul is talking about. He's trying to help a church that was struggling. And there was jealousy in the middle of it, and there was resentment, and there was some bitterness, and there was division, and it was just a lot of stuff happening. And Paul is trying to kind of cut through all of that, and rather than kind of untangle the snarl on the fishing line of, well, you know, you offended her when you said this, and, you know, you really shouldn't have done that, and you need to fix that, he just says, look, you guys are serving and, and doing stuff as a church and living life together but you're forgetting the greatest commodity that all of this should arise from, and that is a love for one another. So it's interesting that in the first century, in fact, in the Bible's time, the, the, Bible's time, the Bible says that the, those who are following Christ, those who are the people of the way, initially they were known as, first became known as Christians. Those little Christs are kind of what that meant. Second century, you know what they were known for? Not so much just being Christian. It doesn't come out in English because that word originally has, we've made an English word, Christian, out of it. But there was another word that they kind of invented as a play on word that basically said those, those little good kind people, those people that show kindness. That was what the early church was known for, is showing love and kindness, not just to one another, but to others around them. That's what Christians should be known for. That's what churches should be known for. That's what we should especially be known for. So his guys, as you think about your relationships inside your church with others, even outside of that, if you don't have a motivation of love, something's really wrong. You know what happens to me? I value oftentimes being, being, being right. By that, I don't mean, well, I'm going to be right so you can be wrong. By that, I mean, I want to know what's true. I want to hold to what's right, what's good. And that's, that's a good thing. But what Paul is telling us, who cares if you're right and know all truth and know all the knowledge of the universe? If you don't have the demonstration of all of that out of an attitude and an action and a behavior of love, it's absolutely worthless. So my question this morning is, is do you value love truly in your life and ministry? I'm not talking about other people loving you. We get this backwards. We think that this is all about making sure that other people love us. But actually, Paul is like, no, I want to make sure that you love them. If you don't value love as the first and foremost priority thing that comes from you towards others in your life, you need to seriously reevaluate what you're thinking, what you're doing, your behavior, your attitude, and your heart. I know as well as you do that there's times where that's tough. Like when you're driving down the thruway, let's pick an easy one. We can, most of us in the room can probably agree to. It's tough to love that. It's, you know, tough to love the person when they flip you off and just act like you're the craziest driver in the world when you had a legitimate reason why you needed to go slow or stop or whatever, and they don't see it, and they just, you know, 
It's tough to have a motivation of love. But Paul is saying, no matter where you are, living with individuals, in relationship with fellow Christians in a church, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, you better value love above all of it, or you are absolutely nothing. Your title, your position becomes meaningless. Your rank, your abilities, your knowledge, all the cool stuff that you've got is out the window if you don't have a motivation to love. Second thing, not just the superiority of love over everything, but I want you to notice the standard of love. Look what Paul says, and this is buckle your seatbelt, swallow hard. These are kind of painful if we really look at them. Here's what God's definition of love is all about. Love is patient, long-term, not has been, not once was patient, not occasionally patient, not once in a while, is constantly, ongoing, patient. That means if you don't have patience, you don't have love. He says also, and it is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. literally doesn't seek its own. It's not irritable. It's not cranky, easily agitated, gets angry, or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believe all, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I want you to notice that this standard of love is not the standard that we hold other people to, but it's the standard that we should hold ourselves to toward other people. That's not the way this life works, right? We get all upset about what the other person's doing to us or not doing to us, and we call them out on it, whether it's our spouse, whether it's our kids, whether it's our parents, whether it's our neighbor, whether it's our coworkers. We complain about them, we talk about them, and unfortunately, we post on social media about them, which is not a wise move. And Paul is not trying to lay out a standard of us for us to make sure that the other people in our life treat us right. And that's the way we're wired as our default, right? Because we want to protect ourselves. Paul isn't doing that. He's saying, guys, take a deep breath, look at your own life. This is a standard of your behavior and action toward those people. So let's look at that. He says it is patience. It's willing to endure difficulty, hardship, when the other person is not treating you well, is not being loving towards you, love is enduring that. It's patient. And all the while it's patient, it's not just sucking it up and saying, I love you, I'll put up with it. It's also kind in the middle of that. A, a goodness, a service to that person. Not necessarily always a gentleness, but definitely leaning that way. I'm not saying that you can't, it's definitely not a harshness, Gentle, sometimes you've got to be firm. If the, the nurse has to come in to give a kid a shot, you don't want a nurse that's tentative and, gee, I don't know if I can, you know, like, sorry, kid, I love you, you know, <laughs> here it is. You know, you can be kind and do that kind of thing, but it's, it's kind. It's considering the other person. It's not, it doesn't, it's not inflamed and impassioned with envy or jealousy. 
It's not boiling over in a person's heart. See, when you and I battle jealousy and envy, the real issue is we're not loving that other person. When you and I struggle with that, we need to go hard toward God and say, God, I know there's not a, love, not a lot of love in my heart right now. Forgive me. I'm having trouble getting there. Would you help me to get past that? Help me. The presence of envy and jealousy means the absence of love. It doesn't boast. It's literally, uh, it's, it, it doesn't brag. That boasting is kind of the idea of a, of a bellows, of a blowing hot air. You know, if you talk a lot, you probably need to be careful here. But if you talk a lot about yourself, you especially need to be careful. Now, there's a difference between confident and boasting, and you can also be an introvert and quiet and be really prideful too. But this is talking about people that are sharing. You know how whenever you get into fight with somebody, you focus 90% on what you did, justifying what you did? There's probably just a little bit of pride in there when we do that, don't you think? Just a little bit, not a lot of listening, not a lot of hearing the other person. I'm guilty, been there, done that multiple times, so I'm with you on it. But he says, true love doesn't boast. True love isn't arrogant. Have you ever seen those little puffer fish, little fish that kind of look like normal fish swimming around in the ocean, and all of a sudden they get afraid or something comes up and they blow right up like a ball, like kind of like a, think like of a, of a balloon, you know, and a porcupine had kids, that's kind of what the puffer fish would look like, you know, just kind of a big blown up balloon with lots of points around it. I mean, enough to be like, ooh, I don't know what you are, but I am totally leaving you alone. You know, I presume big fish comes along and puffer fish sees it and like, yeah, I'm not a pleasant meal. You do not want to sink your teeth into me. That is what this idea of arrogance is. I think there's a I think that is a good illustration for us to help us to really understand what arrogance, where it comes from. Arrogance ultimately comes out of insecurity. It comes out of a, an insecurity in yourself, thinking that you've got to puff up to show yourself something. And you're not secure just right where you are. And so Paul says, guys, when you're doing that, you're not demonstrating love. There is zero love when it comes to arrogance. Zero. We hate arrogance in other people, right? Anybody there? I don't like being around arrogance. I'll tell you a secret. They don't like it when they smell it on you either or me. Nobody enjoys it at all. Paul says, love is not in the house when there's pride or there's arrogance. So let it go. Love is not rude. It literally does not... Um, it doesn't make you blush. It, it, it's, it's considerate, tactful toward other individuals. Thinking about how it hits them. We all struggle with that. And by the way, if you thrive in a busy world and you just are one of these type A people that struggle from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, I can promise you that you are inadvertently acting rude toward others without thinking about it. Because the only way that you don't act rude is when you slow down enough to think about how things hit other people. Now, we all struggle with that, and we will all, you know, in the moment, wow, I did not think about how that was going to hit somebody else. Guilty. But that's why Paul is saying, truly, if we love people, we're not going to come across as rude. We're not going to be, we're, we're going to be careful. We're going to be tactful when tact is needed. Not lacking confidence, again, maybe going back to the nurse or the doctor, 
You know, if somebody pokes you with a needle, it's not necessarily rude. Maybe you really do need a shot to save your life. But I think we all know the, the difference. It's a motivational issue, and it's whether or not we're doing something for somebody else's good, or we're really just ignoring them because we don't care enough to slow down, and we're just acting with what is good for us. That's rude. Paul goes on. He says, it does not seek its own way. That rude kind of leads us into this. Literally doesn't seek its own benefit. When you and I are struggling in relationships with other people, it is so easy for you to I to act as uh, judge, jury, and executioner. And we, in our own mind, think about all the places and times where they've messed up, and we know that we're right, and we, we become little mini-attorneys, even though we've never gone to law school to, to understand how this all works, and we have our ten lists of why the other person's wrong and why you're completely exonerated and innocent and not guilty and all of that. But what Paul is giving us in these, and I'm kind of giving you a little halftime break through this laundry list, but he's really giving us a litmus test. He's giving us a gauge for our own heart, a gauge with just exactly where our love is. How do you ever notice that you have a flat tire? How many of you, got, how many of you have a car where that has one of those little sensors that tells you, like in the car, hey, your tire's low? How many have one of those? Okay, I don't have one of those. I usually notice because I'm either losing traction or I'm like starting to squeal around corners or once in a while I'm just proactive and actually look. And I'm like, hmm, that tire seems kind of low. Feels a little soft or, you know, it's just it's, the ride's a little different and handles different. And then I, what do you do? You pull out a gauge or wherever you're going to fill it up, you have a gauge because that tells you how much air pressure's in there. Think about this chapter 13 as a gauge. Paul is giving us a test to examine our heart, to see how much love is really on the inside. See, all of us blow a lot of smoke. We're like, well, I bought flowers, and I said I love you, and I have done X, Y, and Z. And Paul's like, he doesn't say, hey, how many times did you do a nice thing for people? He doesn't say, well, do you feel like you really like them and want to be around them? No, that's a bad gauge, too. That's a faulty test. His real test is, what are you actually doing? What's your behavior? And he's challenging us to really examine deep into our soul. And he says, true love doesn't seek its own benefit. Guys, that's hard for me. Because I, I like what I like. And I care about the way I get treated. I want to feel comfortable and helped and all of that. And Paul says, yeah, I pretty much am not worried about that for you at all. I assume he probably thinks that you and I are going to make sure that we're okay one way or the other, but he knows that our sinful, human, wicked hearts is that we're looking out for number one. And he says, no, that's not real love. By the way, if you only ever give flowers or do the nice things to make up for your junk or to smooth it over, yeah, that might be a nice thing to do, but you're actually doing it for yourself as much as you are for the other person. You're just trying to get out of hot water. And Paul is moving way past all of that, and he says, look, you need to take the action that actually seeks the good of the other person completely. Doesn't seek your own. I want to remind you, he's not talking about just one or two people. He's not talking, this is not just for husband and wife. It's not just, uh, this is not the nice little short list of how to have a great, marriage or how to have a relationship, all of that speaks into the middle of it, but he's talking about how to, that we ought to be loving people across the board, 
and our life, not seeking our own, but instead seeking their welfare. So when you're in the middle of your rant, or you're in the middle of whatever's going on, or you're sitting back and you're fuming, you know, after you calm down, step back and say, am I really trying, am I really upset because they're not getting what's best for them? Am I really upset because I'm not getting what's best for me? Am I upset because they've been inconvenienced? Or am I upset because I got inconvenienced? If you and I were willing to do that, most of that stuff would peel away and fall away from our life because it's not really love. Paul says, true love seeks the good of the other person, not yourself. He goes further. He says, uh, it is not irritable. It's not cranky, not easily agitated. We all blame our agitation on other people, frustration, anger, irritation, crankiness. And we assume that if they would just straighten up and act right and we didn't have to deal with it, that we wouldn't be irritable. And Paul says, no, the real problem is, is you don't love them. It's on you. He doesn't say, he doesn't give us a way out. He just says, it's on you. If you're irritable, you're not loving them. You need to love them more. He says, not only irritableness, but he says resentfulness. Oh, this is a big one. Have you ever thrown a pity party? I have. That's what this is. This idea of resentment is you're adding up all the wrongs, you're keeping track, and you've got a score and a tally, and you're holding that other person accountable for that. That's what a pity party is. You are feeling pity on yourself because you know that other person has done X, Y, Z, one, two, three against you. It's an accounting term. We're, we all have a way of keeping accounts in our brains, don't we, with various people in our lives. So when you're having a pity party, it's actually another word for it is resentment. Pity party makes it sound like we're still the victim. It's not a victimless crime. We actually are resentful toward the other person, and it's evidence that we don't love them. Paul says we don't keep track, we don't keep score. We don't know what the score of that game was. We truly let it go. We don't hold on to it. And it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices whether it's ourselves or anybody else, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It, it's willing to endure tremendous difficulty in life. I think the, the, uh, one of the best Halloween costumes I've seen in a long time, I saw online, a friend of mine from high school, his teenage son, dressed up, and he kind of, I don't know what he had, but he was kind of dressed up like a package, like something you would put in the mail. And uh, on, the, the, on his hat, he said, uh, he had written big, big letters, it was big like this, it said, I'm offended. And then here, he put uh, a label on his chest that said, Millennial. And then he had the little orange stickers that you put on packages that said fragile and handle with care all over his body. And I just thought it was the most hysterical thing going. Um, I would say to the millennials in the room, the college students and 20-somethings, I really don't think your whole generation's like that. 
some of your generation really is like that. But I will say this, true love bears and endures and suffers and is and patient and knows how to handle adversity. Jesus, when he saves us, guys, puts a backbone in us and he puts a strength in us that we aren't the, you know, the, the hashtag snowflakes. It's just every little thing that just blows us away. So my challenge to the millennials in this room is don't be that costume. But instead, true love bears and endures because you've got a security and a relationship with Christ. You've got a strength that, that is before God in heaven that loves you. True love doesn't have to react the way that you and I react. You see, at the end of the day, it's not just that we get angry or that we have emotional problems or relational stuff or our past makes us touchy or this or that. What Paul is telling us, the real issue in these relationships is we don't truly know how to love the people around us. And it's more on us than it is on them. In fact, if he were doing any kind of counseling relationally, he would say, just stop. I don't care what he or she has done to you. I want you to look at what's coming out of your life and your heart toward the other person. Are you showing love? No, nope, I don't want to hear what's coming from that other person. Are you showing love? But I don't want to hear it. What's coming out of your hearts? He's telling us that our responsibility is to truly care and to love and to let all, everything out of our life flow out of that. That's the standard that God has for us. Now, guys, there's not a person in our room that's lived up to that. Right? Raise my hand, both hands, feet. I mean, none of us. None of us have lived up to that. It's called sin. It's called an impossibility. It's called, that's the love that God demonstrated for you and for me when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. You see, that means at the end of the day, for you and I to have really good relationships, whether it's with friends, whether it's with husbands and wives, we have to be able to get to that kind of love. And you and I can't do it on our own. That is a supernatural, miraculous kind of love that only comes from heaven that comes from God himself. And the only way you and I can even begin to live in that kind of world is by a personal relationship with the God in heaven who is the source of all love, him putting that and planting it in our souls the moment that we have a, a saving relationship with Christ. And then out of that, God begins to change us more and more and begins to give us that love, and we experience that. You see, he, we begin to become secure in our relationship with him, and out of it, we don't have to be prideful. Out of it, we don't have to try to protect ourselves or puff. Out of that, we don't have to be resentful and holding the right and wrong. Why? Because we know that God's forgiven us our junk, and He's told us to forgive other people's junks, and that regardless of what happens, He's going to take care of us, and He's going to love us. We don't have to make sure that everybody treats us exactly right, because God has loved us and taken care of us. You see, that love only comes from a personal relationship with Jesus. So this morning, I want to challenge you. If you're struggling with that kind of love in an area of your life, even if the other person's been a jerk to you and all of that, but if you're struggling to truly work through it, you really need God's love more in your life. And it may be that you may need to trust Him to save you first, and then out of that and confess all of that bitterness and junk and resentment and anger and all of that, whatever else has gone on, and ask God to forgive you of that and to save you, to get your relationship with Him right, and then out of that, allow God to help you to treat that other 
person correctly. That means that you and I have the, are able to do this really when it comes through that amazing relationship with Christ. So guys, while we're all guilty of not living this, we also get the wonderful privilege that through Jesus, we can be forgiven of all of that, and we can more and more live in this world. And that's what God calls us to. Third thing, I'm, I'm done quickly because we're going to celebrate this, the, what the Lord has done for us, and it fits so well with the idea of love. But I want to talk about the stability of love, the enduring nature of it. Look at what the verse, 20, verse 8 says, Love never ends. Never. If it ends, it wasn't really love. He says, for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. In other words, all this ministry stuff is going to go away. Churches, all of the ministries will go away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In other words, grow up and start loving. Grow up and put away that other stuff. Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our groups can talk about that more in detail this week. We don't have time right now this morning. But notice this. He says, Now faith, hope, and love abide. Three incredible, enduring things. These three... But the greatest of these is love. Love never ends, guys. In our relationships, we, live, we unfortunately live in a very disposable world. And, um, you know, the world around us will tell us we should be more concerned about recycling and our disposable packaging and plastics and all of that. And let me be clear, we should care about that. But you know what? There's something way more important that I wish our world would talk about that, and that's disposable relationships. There's way more collateral damage being done relationally in this world than there ever was through, through drinking straws. Way more damage doing into people's hearts and lives through a lack of love and not truly showing that. So it, love never fails. It will endure everything. Eventually this planet will go away. Life as we know will cease and pass. God's made sure of that. It's not, again, not an excuse to be a, a, uh, a polluting reprobate, whatever you want to call it. But it means that we should truly love one another, truly deeply demonstrate that love. So as we think about the Lord's Supper, and our team's going to come up here, our band's going to come up to be ready to lead us in a song, and they're going to pass out the elements while we sing that song. And that's really your time to, to meditate and think about these things, to think about your relationship with others, think about your relationship with Christ. But as, as they come and do that, I want, you to, I want you to think about this, all right? We talked, what, two weeks ago that God gave this celebration to us together as a church to celebrate and to remember Jesus dying on the cross for us. And he warned the church in Corinth, he said, you guys have real problems because you don't know how to have healthy, godly, loving relationships with one another. We just finished that in chapter 11. If there is somebody in your world that you just know that you have given the shaft, that you have deeply offended, that you're, and it may be somebody in the room, 
Jesus told us that we're to leave our gift, our act of worship on the altar and go get that right. I would suggest to you to let the plate pass. But if you are sitting there saying this morning, Sean, you really challenged me. I haven't been patient. I have been rude. I've been this or that. And you know there's some relational stuff there. You don't have to have perfect relationships to participate in this supper together is what I'm saying. But if you're at a point where your relationships are reasonably okay, but even so you're a little convicted that you need to work on some things, that's all right. And these, while the team is singing, that's our time to say, God, forgive me. That's your time in your heart to commit, to go have the conversation with a person. That's the time to commit in your heart to do what you need to do to genuinely change. Not buy the flowers or candy, just a little thing to put a Band-Aid on something, but to genuinely ask God to work in your life and to genuinely step forward. So this song is a response song. It's meant for you to have time to think about what we just looked at in God's Word. Think about the fact that God loves you and sent His Son Jesus for you to prepare your heart for this. Uh, it's your time. So whatever God is kind of speaking to your soul this morning, pray with me. You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean.